Good morning. Good to see everybody today and glad you're with us here at Grace. It's already the middle of July. It's like summer's like half over. The school supplies are in the stores. Oh, you want me to be quiet, huh? Yeah, well, I hope you've had an opportunity to have vacation. And if you haven't, hope that's still ahead for you. And we're glad to have Tim here. It's just your first time with us. Thanks for being with us here. Today we are ending our, our series called Off the Chain. It's been on the book of Galatians. And Paul, in the book of Galatians, has done a great job to explain to us the gospel, to defend the gospel, and to emphasize how important it is to keep it pure and not add anything to it. In Galatians, unlike a lot of his other letters, it seems that a lot of his letters kind of end with some farewell language that he's writing to the churches. And, and what I mean by that is these little, you know, farewell languages, those proverbial type of wisdoms or advice that you cast out kind of when you're saying goodbye. I know I, with my kids, I always say things like, be safe. And that's so obvious, like, ruin their danger? I mean, what's the deal with that? I remember when I was a little kid, this is back in the 60s, I remember my mom always saying to me, now make sure you have clean underwear on. They don't still do that, do you, moms? You worry about that? I mean, I could get hit by a truck and you're only worried if I soiled my pants? I mean, come on. But what happens in Galatians 6 is a lot of preachers will go in there and they will pick out those proverbial wisdoms and, and just focus on that, you know, about you reap what you sow or maybe don't be weary in well-doing. But really, it is... A, it's casting a vision. So there's a lot packed into chapter 6. It casts a vision of the activities and the attitudes that should be in the church that preaches the gospel. You know, church, when you think about it, church really is for everyone. And every one of us is a sinner. And sin is that kind of thing that keeps us from who we can be and keeps us from what we can do. And so Galatians 6 really focuses on some key things to help us be involved in the process of removing chains. So let's get busy. We've got a lot to look at. I'm actually going to start at the last verse of chapter 5 and verse 26 that sets the stage for the things that he talks about in chapter 6. He says, let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another, these are three heart conditions. To be boastful is to be self-righteous. To challenge someone else is to be like a provoker, really is a bully. It's the kind of person who really won't take anyone on equal or above them. They go after those who are weaker and tell them things that they should be doing. And then to be envious is when you sense that someone is right or someone is better or someone is getting more praise than you. That, that you envy them, you dislike them because of that. So for Paul to speak about these qualities, it must mean that these kind of things, these three heart conditions can be going on in a church. And that is to great harm here and great harm to anyone who, who would enter. And so I was thinking about this and I thought of the Browns Stadium. It has a nickname. Does anybody know the Browns stadium's nickname? Factory of Sadness. That's what I've heard. Now you know how appropriate that is, right? But I couldn't help but think about that 
if the church is full of these three things, if this, is, if this characterizes us, then we take the cake. We top the factory of sadness. And I know that's pretty hard because it's pretty sad over there, isn't it? So, but we can't. We can't have this to be true of us. And unfortunately, for 2,000 years since this passage has been written, many churches have failed to heed to it. And they're busy about setting some up here and pushing down others. And some churches really don't want to deal with sin at all. And so they, they don't want to offend anyone, fear of turning people away. So they really don't deal with sin. And when we talk about addressing sin, we are not talking about adding chains. We are talking about what really helps set them free. You have to talk about it. And so you have these extremes where churches over here maybe uh, are legalistic, self-righteous to churches way over here who are loose and won't stand for anything. And the truth is what's common between both of them is that neither of them transform lives. So we're going to look at some things here of what Paul is saying that can transform our lives. In, in chapter 6 and verse 1, he says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So I want to look at some of these words. The word anyone. Really, that's pretty obvious. That it means all of us. And it's really important to keep that in mind. No one is exempt from the things he's going to say. If you're caught, that is the idea of being overtaken or trapped. I used to hear this taught more it's like catching someone or you busted someone in sin. But it really doesn't mean that. It means some, you're in bondage to, you have some kind of habit, some kind of character trait, some kind of flaw, some tendency, some weakness. He says any trespass, which he's referring to any sin, and that would be a range of things that just hinder us or things that can be quite destructive. It could be anything from being filled with worry to being, and being irresponsible to having great addiction or great violence. So he's saying anyone who's overtaken or chained, so in other words, it's all of us in some area unless we're blind by our conceit. So then he goes on to say, you who are spiritual, that you who are, that who are to me would imply that some wouldn't be. And so don't confuse when he's saying spiritual here that that means that anyone has arrived because no one has arrived. But he's calling amongst all sinners in the church and saying, you who are spiritual. So when I think of that, I'm thinking, what defines someone that's spiritual? Who are you if you're spiritual? First of all, from these last two chapters, we can gain that it's those who are walking in the Spirit. It has to do with a direction that you're going because you haven't arrived. And Galatians 5 tells us what those traits are. It's those who are humble about their trespasses. So they know they have a weakness. They know they have a tendency, but, but they're honest about it. They're willing to take instruction and correction. It would be those who know they could be in the offender's shoes. So anytime they're looking at someone who's caught, they would say, hey, you could be, I could be in your shoes, or I used to be in your shoes. Or it really, it should be everyone that's in the church when he says, who is spiritual, those who are spiritual. So from this, I thought, well, then, who ate spiritual? <laughs> Let's just make sure. Are you guys awake? Are you with me still? Okay. 
So who ain't spiritual? Well, that would be those who are walking in the flesh. Again, back into chapter 5, it lists all those things. And I think people walking in the flesh, they know that they are walking. It's those who think everything centers around themselves. And that can be present here in church. And those not humble about their trespasses. So even though they might be addressed, they're refusing to get any help. They deny it. Uh, they won't take any kind of correction. And who ain't spiritual? It could be anyone in the church. It could be the pastor, the elders, the deacons, the leaders, the volunteers. It could be members of the church. It could be longtime members of the church. No one is exempt. In other words, a title doesn't mean that you are spiritual, not by these definitions. No one gets stamped spiritual because of their position. So it's something that we all need to look at. We all, in other words, need to walk in and out. No, so question would be, where are you? Where am I? Which characterizes us most? Which direction are we going in? And if yesterday you were on one side of this, where are you today? That's what we need to ask ourselves. He's saying, you who are spiritual, we're all sinners, but you who are spiritual, you need to be busy restoring. So let's look at what that is. Restoring means to mend or repair or to do things to bring back harmony. How? Well, sometimes it's kind of done passively. Sometimes people come to us and tell us about their trespass or their sin or their struggle. Now, they, they, they come, they ask for help. They may ask help for the problems that it's caused. For example, if someone who has an anger problem, they might come and say, hey, I am really struggling with my anger. And your first response might be, you? You have an anger problem? I never, never could have guessed that. They say, yeah, I've, I've just been taking things out at people in my home. I've really broken a lot of things. And right now, things are quite heavy for me. So it could be that someone brings something to you. Or it could be that you notice it. You can see these particular traits or qualities that someone's caught in. It's their pattern. It's their way. And it, and it really, they need some help with that. So it could be that you just notice it. But either way, if, it, if someone has come to us or we notice it, our, our response and our approach, two things Paul says. He says for us to, to deal with this, to restore, be a part of this process by having the spirit of gentleness. And when we talk about gentleness, we're not talking about anything that's weak. There is, there is a great strength that when people tell you things or that you have to confront, that you don't freak out, that you don't have a bad response, don't have an angry response or a judgmental response. I don't think gentleness is anything weak. And I think people in general are drawn to a strength if someone is also gentle, they need the strength because they need help. But they want to know that if they've taken all this time and got this nerve up to come and tell you what they're going through, what they're struggling with, they got to know that you're not going to blast all over them. So that's why he says be gentle. You know, people come to church all the time. A lot of them come to church because they have chains, they have problems and issues, and maybe they've been praying. And talking to God about it and confessing it, they're, they're open about it. So you say, okay, I'll just go to church. Maybe church can help me. Is, the question would be, is church, our church, any church, is it a place where people can be open about what they're struggling with? 
Is it safe for people to be authentic here in church? The second thing is to be humble. So gentle and humble, always looking to yourself that that could be you. So how do we restore? Because Paul is saying, he's referring to any trespass. So small things, big things, how do we do that? Well, first of all, it could look as simple as just having honest talks with people. Just in that time, talking to them, giving them some guidance, giving them uh, some direction, steering them away from where they are, steering them towards some things. Sometimes it could just be praying because they're just venting and they know what God's Word says, so it's just being gentle, praying with them, encouraging them to keep moving forward. It could be that. In fact, that goes on a lot. That should go on a lot. And secondly, sometimes it's, it's a rather large issue, and it takes longer, and it takes some confronting and some discipline and some accountability and counseling. In other words, it's kind of like spiritual surgery that needs to go on. But either, either way, the role of restoring people isn't, doesn't have the goal of gaining friendship, even though friendship can result from you restoring and helping someone. You know, I think churches are full of a lot of social groups that get along. And part of what makes them stick together is because of the common, the common error or flaw that they have in with each other, and they do not try to help each other get over that. Common example is gossip. Some people like to get with someone that will gossip, and then and they don't correct them, and so they kind of feel comfortable to continue to do to continue to do that. But when we restore, it isn't about gaining a relationship. It's about restoring a relationship for that believer to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it may, even if you are gentle, it may cost a friendship. Another thing, when I think about restoring, I think about, like, restoring a house. And uh, you guys watch those uh, house flipping shows? You know what I'm talking about? When you, those flipping shows? I'm not really saying anything derogatory about shows, <laughs> okay? But those, those shows, I think you could write the script. You know, they're going to, first of all, start off by showing you this dilapidated house. And then they're going to show you their plan and their, kind of what they envision it to, to be. And, of course, then there's this destructive phase that they seem to like, picking up the sledgehammer and knocking the wall down, or doing some sanding because things are really rough, or of course they look at the foundation and it's cracked, and there's always where they go down in the basement, and then they always find those surprises, it's worse than they thought. You know what I'm talking about? Then it cuts to commercial, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And of course they always have amazing tools, like sometimes they go, oh, I'd like to do this, but they got some great tools. But still, what you always see is that it still takes elbow grease. It still means to crawl or to climb into areas that you don't want. And, and it's just hard work. And so though, what keeps them going instead of getting discouraged is that they do look and see the progress that's been made. They still have the vision of where this is going. So it keeps them encouraged and energized. And I always like those before and after pictures. But when it comes to restoring people. There are some similarities, but I think it may be harder. Well, first of all, 
when it comes to being in this process. You look at your brother and sister as belonging to Christ. That's so important. So no matter what has happened, no matter how bad it is, we are to look at them as a brother or sister in Christ, and they belong to Christ. And the first thing to do is to point them back to forgiveness with Christ and to then look at what Christ says so they can move forward and go towards restoring their life back to that. So we start with that vision. But sometimes that takes some de deconstructing. Sometimes it takes knocking down a lot of walls. Sometimes that's a lot of sanding. Sometimes it's looking at the foundation and you go, wow, you know, they, they may not have been raised with certain things and so there's a whole lot missing. And sometimes it involves finding hidden things down in their creepy basements. And sometimes you just find surprises. But I know one thing, different than what was 2,000 years ago when this was written, we have so many amazing tools to help people today. They didn't even have a, a Bible. We have the Bible on podcasts and videos. There's so many things to help people to get going. But you know, the truth is it still means you have to take the time and the phone calls and checking on them and praying for them and a lot of patience. That's still there. And sometimes you get weary, sometimes it's hard, but you know, when you're in that process, you will see this progress that will encourage you. And you have the goal of what Christ wants to do in their life to keep you moving forward. And so I know here, some of you, when I'm talking about this, you, you know that there's been restoration in your life. You know where you were before Christ, some of you, even as a Christian, you know some mistakes you've made, you've crashed. You know the restoring process. You have come here, you have been under sermons, you've got into classes, you may have joined like a fight club or some kind of support group, and you have been ministered to. You've had Christians who have helped give you a vision. Instead of turn you away or judge you, they've given you a vision of how you can turn this around or how you can move forward. They've corrected you, they've lifted you, they've helped you, and your life is changed because of that. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And some of you here have fallen right on your face and crashed and you have experienced what it is to have a believer, first of all, show up in your life, not abandon you, pick you up, blow off the dust, and even, you know what it is now, to even be an example and to, to minister. So I think we get what goes on here. But it's possible that you can't see yourself being involved in that restoration process Maybe it's you don't feel you're skilled enough or you can communicate well enough or that you have enough time. So there's some other ways to be a part of the process. But, and what I'm saying by that is if, if you found yourself on the not spiritual list, how to move over. And first, before I give too many details here, first is just being aware that this process is going on in church. Church isn't where you come in and you go, you know, who are the, the spiritual uppity people? We are all, we all have issues. This coming into a place of knowing here that this process is going on. There are some being helped. They haven't arrived yet. And there are some that are helping them. And that you would commit to not be critical either. And that you would make sure you are not a hindrance in any way to that process 
That's the best thing that all of us could be doing. But then there's something else that Paul talks about. Verse 2, he says, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Now, bear means to hold them up. It means to endure with them because things don't fix necessarily overnight. Burdens is the idea of something that's heavy or difficult that is beyond them resolving that on their own. Now, just remember, when he's talking about burdens here, the context of this passage is dealing with sins, is dealing with error, trespasses, issues, problems. And so, he's saying these people have these burdens as a consequence to the choices they make. What often gets said is they deserve them. And sure, they do, but we deserve our own consequences. And the truth is none of us are dealt what we deserve to be dealt. You could say, you know, in fact, if you're worried about that, don't worry about that because you, you can't erase those consequences. Some people, those consequences are inside and they'll never forget. And others, maybe they've hurt, they'll never forget. You say, well, if I jump in and help and lift, won't I be enabling them? Make sure we understand what enabling is. Enabling is that effort to, to prevent a consequence or to remove that consequence, take it away, and removing any pain. That's not what restoring and bearing is. Restoring and bearing is picking up one end. So the consequence is there. But it's picking up one end and making it lighter to help them move in a direction for God to utilize that. In fact, when you get involved with someone like that, you will send a message to them about who God is. You're going to send a message to them about who you are. And you're actually going to send a message to them about who they are. That God, as bad as everything is, that God could still take their consequences and their situation and turn it around for his glory. Do you believe that? You believe that? In fact, we open a Bible and we get involved with the Bible. What is the Bible? But looking at the lives of so many people who have failed or are just sinners, and we watch God work with them anyways. And so this, this should help us a little bit. In fact, one of the biggest burdens that people carry is the temptation to repeat or to return. And bearing, is, bearing someone's burden is preventing them from going backwards. We have a life support ministry that meets on Wednesday night, and that exemplifies what I'm talking about, where people are in there struggling and yet bearing and helping people to move forward in their life. And the truth is, where would any of us be without someone who has lifted our load, no matter if it was our fault? You know, the church seeing this, the church wants to have preventative care. And we do that by offering premarital classes, marriage classes, financial classes, parenting classes. We have kids' programs. Years ago, I was a camp counselor, and the camp's motto was that it's easier to build boys and girls than it is to repair men and women. And I remember back then, I loved working with kids, but I know at times it, it wasn't easy to do that. But now, in my old decrepitness, <laughs> on this end of life, I'm busy helping repair men and women. And now looking at both ends of it, that camp motto had it spot on. It's easier, not easy, but it's easier to build boys and girls than to repair men and women. Now he goes on to say, you'll fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? John 13, 
verse 34 says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you. That's the law of Christ. And Christ demonstrated that, had a reputation that those who were outcast, sinners, could connect with him. And it had nothing to do with him condoning their sin. He didn't condone their sin. He just had a gentle way of being present and caring and lifting up their life. So when we look at this, some of us here, we might be able to specialize more in the restoring processes. Some of us here might be, do better at just the lifting process. But what's good is that all of us recognize that both these things need to be going on and that we would be busy encouraging one another and be mindful to avoid hindering that process. In fact, Paul's guidance here is so that the church doesn't have to be this place that's arrogant and self-righteous where you have self-righteous sinners who are not honest about their own sin putting pain and disdain on those who are honest about their sins and are asking for help. The law of Christ needs to rule in the church, and that involves all of us. Now look at verse 3. For if anyone thinks he's something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Kind of reaching back there again to that, first, or that last verse of chapter 5. Don't drown in self-deception about your role here. Verse 4 goes on to say, make sure you examine your heart as you bear your own load. Now he goes on to kind of break this down and say a few things to help those who are receiving ministry through the church in some way, personally, pastorally, whatever it is, they're receiving ministry. He gives some advice for them to consider in the process. Verse 6, he says, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. So advice, if you are receiving help in ministry, is to appreciate. Some take this verse and say, well, this is a verse to make sure that you're paying your pastor. Now, I'd like to hold on to that interpretation, but that has nothing to do with paying a pastor. In fact, it has nothing to do really with tangible things or monetary things. Can you imagine? I mean, first of all, many of you share the word with others. Do you think that God wants the church to be full of a bunch of monetary, uh, you know, transactions is, is a part of ministry? No, when he's talking about sharing good things, he's talking about giving feedback. He's talking about if you've been ministered, share about that progress. He's, he's saying communicate appreciation for those who have paid a price to be able to minister to you. That's what he's talking about. In fact, what's so, what's so interesting with this is that when that happens, it really energizes those who are doing ministry. It helps them to go, yeah, okay, I guess it was worth that effort and that time that I, I was willing to sacrifice, but it, it, it makes it worth all of that. So Paul here is saying, he's trying to inspire that we would have mutual ministry going on here. So it's not just those who are spiritual ministering. He's actually inviting everyone to minister to one another by this process. And what you can do is appreciate those who have helped you and have been honest to you. In fact, when what you hear a lot of mentors say, they'll say, I'm getting as much out of this. I thought I was supposed to help them. I'm getting as much out of this. 
as, as they are. And so, so crucial here. So and instead of us having a church as being full of 100% sinners divided into two categories of spiritual and non-spiritual, he's inviting both sides to be a part of the process of ministry. Truth is, I am constantly ministered to here at Grace. There are people here on staff, volunteers who I work with a little more closely, and they see my insecurities. They see some of the needless stress I put on myself or others. They see my emotional vulnerabilities. They know the things that I struggle with. And I am so thankful for the encouragement that I get and for some of them to be honest enough, not just to lighten my load, but even to kind of call me on it. Get me out of that. Correct me. And I'm thankful for that. There's times I go to help people and serve. It's my job. I go thinking I need to lift them, and I walk away with them lifting me. I think you know what I'm talking about. So he's saying... Make sure you're sharing good things if you've been helped. Now, verse 7. This is one of those proverbial gems that a lot of pastors go in and grab and, and, and use as a, a separate kind of message. And sometimes you look at it, especially with what we've been talking about, why is this here? It seems like it just doesn't fit. So the verse is, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap everlasting life. I've heard this verse used to hunt down, like God's hunting down sinners. You're going to pay for what you've done, kind of thing. But the context here, because it's speaking to Christians, the context here is that bad choices bring problems. He says, if we go to the sow to the flesh, we'll have corruption. What corruption means there is it's when good things, it means the decay, it's when good things get bad. It's when usefulness becomes uselessness. It can be big sins, it can be little sins if there's such a thing. It can be things like worry. Wherever we are sowing to these things, we're going to reap pain. One thing I was trying to think through this and the consequences of sins. They can make us feel like God is mad at us. We may have repented, we may have said we're sorry, but for whatever reason now, this thing is following me. This thing is weighting me down. And honestly, I don't think then, when I read that verse, I don't think that there's a tone from Paul that he's condescending to anyone because he says in verse 17 later, he bears the marks of persecuting the church. Anyone who would understand, while well, my past life was bad. And here I am now, I'm serving Jesus, but that keeps following him. And the amount of persecution he went under, the amount of trial that God still allowed to happen to him because what he had done to so many was still a part of his life. So Paul doesn't run from this. He brings this up because this is part of what really helps people to restore. He's telling us here and reminding us that God's world is a world of love. And when we violate that, then we're going to get pain. So he's saying, learn from your choices. Learn what bears pain. Learn what bears fruit. 
and he's reestablishing the boundaries that we all live under. You sowed to this, you reaped. So remember that. And, and if you don't and you think God is always mad at me or he's, look, he won't take these things away, don't, if you go in that mindset, what's going to end up happening is you're going to get bitter at God and you won't heal and you won't get to what God can still use in your life in spite of what has happened. So to truly heal and move forward, he's giving these two things of advice. Appreciate those who minister to you and learn the lessons of sowing and reaping. Take responsibility, no victim mentality in other words. But also what's good about this verse is making sure you see both sides because he then says if you sow, if you sow to the Spirit, you'll also reap good. So maybe you used to sow to the flesh, but he's saying now know that the principle still applies if you do good, that God can still use your life. You know, many that parent, the good rules and the good guidelines you're trying to raise your kids in, a lot of those you're so sold on because when you were younger, you sowed a bunch of wild oats. Do they even use that expression anymore? <laughs> I, I should have looked it up. Should have Googled that. You know, what in the world did they say now? But anyways, you were sowing it. You were out there, and you may have had a good time, but now, oh my goodness, you have borne the pain of that, and it has now motivated because you learned from it. You say, I want my home to be better. I want to avoid something so my kids don't go in there. So that's why he's bringing this up, because... God definitely, definitely loves to repair. He loves to redeem. But what he's saying here is that he will not be mocked. Then he gives some words to the doers of ministry. Look at verse 9. He says, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So here's what he's saying. In doing good, people wear out physically, and they wear out in their heart. It's hard to minister. It's hard to carry burdens and remain gentle and to confront people all the while while you're balancing your own load. And I have seen many quit. I've seen many quit because they're tired. I've seen many quit because they're frustrated. They can't see the fruit or the load just seems endless and just keeps pouring on them. Paul is saying, you will reap. Don't quit. You know, ways that I see reaping is, is fruit now. I see a lot of fruit in people. I see God working in people's life. In fact, I'm going to ask you to participate. Has God been working in your life? Raise your hand. Has God worked in your life? So you, you may have been went over here, but you know there's fruit in your life. So, so look at that. And then there's fruit that comes at the end of life when people have been faithful. In fact, funerals are like billboards of character. They allow us to see what a, what a life has lived when they've been faithful to God, the legacy. And recently here, we have lost some people who have served here in our church. We've lost Kent Cartwright and Chris McCune and Harriet Trumbull and Emery Gill. These, these are people still, some of those funerals still have to happen. It's all recent. But what we visit there is how they serve God faithfully. And I, and I love to view that and see, because a lot of their work, I, for some of these, I never saw their work, but I enjoy the fruit of their labor that they did years ago. And then, since we do see fruit now, we know we'll see fruit later. 
And not just fruit or rewards that come to us, but rewards that go on in other people's lives. God is faithful to reward. There's two things that lead people to quitting ministry, though. First of, it, first of all, it's when it becomes about us. Something we've got to be careful of. You have maybe some success, and that success can swell you. And those three heart conditions we talked about kind of slip in. And then instead of really serving people, you start getting impatient with them and angry with them. And then a second area that, that leads people to quitting is when they just don't get any help. And they don't get any encouragement. And two ways to improve that, of course, there's something for us as leaders. Ephesians 4 tells pastors that we are to be busy equipping you to do the ministry. And so we have that responsibility to make sure we're training you and encouraging you. Someone said churches die when pastors stop equipping and start doing. And so that second area is when the congregation catches the vision of what should be happening, and they get this vision, and they say, you know what, I'm going to help. I'm going to get involved and help. Now, a couple things about doing that. First of all, you can jump in and help with the task. I'm sure you've heard it said, it's probably true really of all organizations, is that 20% of the people do all the work. Have you ever heard of that, you know, 20-80 rule? It might even be less. But we, we talked about this this week. Jeremy helped me crunch some numbers. So if Grace, we run, let's just say, around 2,000 people, that would mean 400, if 20%, 400 people would be involved in serving. So we looked in our data, and we looked over the last eight weeks, and we've had 450 people who have served in some way, maybe one time, or maybe all eight weeks, they have participated in that. And to meet a goal that we have of not wearing people out and making sure we, tr we rotate people, to be able to fulfill that, we need about five or 600 people that are involved in doing some kind of task. And we know that we can always use more help. We know that ministry will go on when you serve and rub shoulders with others and be on a team. But this passage really isn't about tasks in the church. And it's not my goal to be recruiting anyone. That's not the goal by talking about this. In fact, I can't measure how much restoring and, and burden-bearing that goes on in this church. There's no way. How many of you are calling each other, visiting each other, helping each other, doing that gritty, tough discipleship type of stuff? I, there's just no way we have any idea on that. But serving is more than fulfilling a task. And Paul goes on in verse 10, he says, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. What I get out of this is he's saying opportunities are given or presented to us. And I, when I first was processing that, I thought, you know, I have blown so many opportunities in ministry because I was too full of myself. I didn't take the time to listen. And some of that even in my own home. He also says, do good. In any way, that is. In small ways, in, in big ways, guide and lift and pray. And everyone, this passage is saying, everyone should be on your radar, radar to do good to all people because the church is to be injecting the community with the love of Christ. But he says that it should all start here, in the household of faith, your church family. So, in processing this, instead of all of you leaving here and going, signing up to get involved in some kind of task, I'd like to encourage everyone to join some kind of Bible study. Get into some kind of small group. 
not just so you can learn the Bible, but that you can connect with people and be a part of this process of what you observe or what comes on you, that you can be a part of this restoring and bearing burdens of others. I know that's not easy for everyone, but that's what I'd rather see. I think that would be important and a blessing. Because see, just because you have a task or you have some kind of title or some kind of spot here in the church, it doesn't mean that you're really tuned into people. Some people do those things to kind of say, hey, I'm, I'm really just, this is really about me, so I feel good about myself. So I think it would be very valuable. In fact, we've had, we have people from time to time, and I've dealt with people through the years, those that can serve can be full of complaining and gossip and judging others. That, it doesn't matter if they're serving, that can go on. And that is something that all of us need to think about. They can all be hindering to the work of God, leaders as well. Some of you here, you're ready to serve. So move on the opportunities. The opportunities are here. Paul is saying this, church, if we are full of ourselves, full of judgment, condescending attitudes, detached from helping, we won't even begin to think of those on the outside. And we'll clearly chase people away. So in concluding this and in concluding Galatians, it's no wonder that Paul was very, very serious in pushing back legalism from the church and letting that climb in. It's so, so understandable because legalism actually is easier than doing the things that we're talking about. But legalism will never free anyone. See, people need the gospel. And what people need when they come to church, they need spiritual ministry we all need that. There's one more passage as I close. It's an iconic, memorable motto of Paul's life. He concludes in verse 14. He says, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He's saying, I'm all in. My service to the church will be about the cross. It is the only thing that can truly set us free. And I lay down my life for God and for others as Christ did for me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the passage that challenges us here this morning. I thank you for many ministries going on in this church, not just those by title or group, much ministry happens here. But Lord, there's so much more. People still struggle with sin. Help us, God, to see our role, to know the spirit and attitude we need to have. Help us to get even uncomfortable and be a part of helping others. That, God, you'd be pleased and that this could be a light here in our community. And may you get all the glory. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for coming. God bless you. Have a good day.